This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Well, it's good to be able to worship with you today. Thank you for just coming, and let's just continue to allow God to, to work. We want to wrap up our study of the book of Ruth. This standalone study ended up being a, a little series, um, but today we will wrap up that, that study for your Bible study, I, I generally recommend a deep verse-by-verse study. I know sometimes we speed read, we want to read it through in a year, and, and that, that's all good. But uh, So as a whole, I recommend a deep study over just speed reading. But, but at times I feel it's beneficial to read maybe an entire book or at least a good portion of a book at one sitting, simply because that allows you to see the bigger picture and get a bird's-eye view and this past week, I took a few moments and, and read the entire book of Ruth, and it's only got four short chapters, so if you're an average reader, you can get through the book in 10 to 15 minutes or probably even less. But what I like about the book of Ruth is that it has a happy ending. Not all books of the Bible do. For example, one of my favorite books of the Bible until the last chapter is the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, you have bad guys that are trying to bring down the good guys. You've got murder plots plots that are being uncovered. You've got drama. You've got action. You've got historical events that were significant enough to where they found their way into secular history books. But the last part of the book is a downer because people forget about God and they do dumb stuff and slip back into sin and, and the nation of Israel becomes a train wreck again. Uh, Now, books of Nehemiah are necessary because they speak to real life and, uh, you know, illustrate that even when you're in God's will, you will still have problems. You'll still have people that won't like you, they won't trust you. So we need books like Nehemiah to insert a bit of reality. Yet, I still prefer reading a book that has a happy ending. Anybody with me there? That's, That's why when I was younger, I liked the Hardy Boy books. Anybody ever read Hardy Boy books. I, I, there are a few. You, you missed out on so much if you didn't get to read that. And I think, what was the girl's version? Was it Nancy, Nancy Drew? Nancy Drew, something like that. But, but if you read a few of these books, you learned the sequence right near the end of the book. Frank and Joe Hardy, who were good guys, would find themselves in a situation that looked like the ga- bad guys were going to bring them down. And in the last chapter, you knew that they would always somehow, some way come out on top. That's my type of book. And that's why I like the book of Ruth. It has a happy ending. Now, Ruth chapter 4 follows on the heels of that late night event, and if you were not here last week, it's going to be a little bit tough to jump in, but I think you'll catch up here as we go on. Ruth went and and laid at Boaz's feet in a bizarre, but yet culturally appropriate for that time, and a sexually pure marriage proposal. Again, it was kind of strange, and we don't have time to get into it again. You can listen to the podcast if you missed out on it. Just go to our website and follow the links there. But, but this seemingly weird act of Ruth uncovering Boaz's feet while he was sleeping was Ruth's way of nudging Boaz into marriage. We've all heard the fairy tale of the princess who was so beautiful that every bachelor in the kingdom wanted to marry her. And, and by the way, have you noticed, ever noticed that um, in fairy tales, the princess is always beautiful? That's part of the reason they're called fairy tales. But, but the king, I'm, I'm sorry. That wasn't inspired by God, okay? That was in the flesh. But anyway, the king didn't think 
that any of the young men were good enough for his, his daughter is, you know, that's, that's the way we dads are. But so, so to weed them out, he created a challenge. And the man who wanted to marry the princess had to swim across a large pond that was filled with hungry gators, alligators. And, and we've all heard this story. But, but the young men who wanted a chance to marry the princess lined up on the banks of the pond. They were told to either jump in and swim across the pond or go home and forget about the princess. No one moved for a while. But then suddenly, there was a big commotion and, and a big splash. And, and everyone stood watching as one young man started swimming frantically, turning in every direction to avoid the gators. One gator snapped at his hand and he missed. And another went for his leg, but he managed to kick hard enough to escape the jaws of, of death. And again and again, the gators came after him, but he was always moving at the right time. All the while, he was yelling at the top of his lungs. And Finally, he reached the bank of the pond and jumped out, ran about 50 yards from the water and collapsed on the ground, uninjured but utterly exhausted, and the king was impressed. He went to the young man and said, you're such a brave man. You deserve my daughter's hand in marriage. I will even give you half of my kingdom. And the young, young man looked up and said, well, that's great, sir. It's, it's fulfillment of my wildest dreams, but I have only one request. Would you please tell me which one of those low-down rascals pushed me into the pond? But the story's not over. Standing on the other shore where he had been was the princess with a big smile on her face. She had had an eye on this young man, and all the relationship needed was a little nudge. Well, in our lesson last week, we saw Ruth had given Boaz a little nudge. Now, before we go to this concluding lesson, let me give you a quick review and I need to do this, not because I don't have enough material to fill the time. I've actually got too much. But Ruth is a story. And in Ruth 1, Elimelech had moved his family from Bethlehem out of the will of God to the forbidden and cursed land of Moab. And remember how God described that? Remember what he called the Moabites? He said, Moab is my wash pot. And then in another place, Scripture said that they were not to Israel, was not to associate with the Moabites for 10 generations. Um, well, after they moved into Moab, uh, tragedy, Elimelech died, then his two sons died. Ruth chapter 2, Naomi and one of her Moabite daughters named, uh, daughters-in-law named Ruth returned back to Bethlehem. Upon arriving, Ruth went out into the fields to glean enough grain to just keep them alive. And, and it just so happened, remember that lesson we talked about luck or coincidence, which doesn't exist in the Bible. But she went into the field of Boaz, who was a relative of her late father-in-law and Boaz immediately showed her great generosity. Chapter 3, Ruth followed her mother-in-law's plans, sought out Boaz in the dark of the night, and again in a very culturally appropriate, a pure move. She uncovered his feet, laid down at his feet. He woke up with a start, and it so frightened him. Remember the Targum, which is an Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament. It came about in the, in the first century. It said that he was so shocked and afraid that his flesh became like a boiled turnip. Whatever that looks like. But when he asked who it is, she made a bold request that he fill the role of kinsman redeemer. And that was the cultural practice that when a man died leaving no children, his closest relative would marry the widow so that the family name could continue. Chapter 3, last week, ended where Boaz said, I'm interested in redeeming you and marrying you, but... There's a slight problem. There's another relative that's actually closer to you. And so by law, I have to give him first chance. 
And that takes us to Ruth chapter 4 today. Now, since we're using this word nudge to nudge us into our lesson, I want to ask a question. Why has Boaz taken such an interest in Ruth? He's given her extra grain. He's treated her better than his own employees, and he treated them very well. Why has he paid extra attention to this foreign woman? Well, you say, duh, she's a beautiful woman. And for our society, that's a reasonable response. You know, whether we admit it or not, generally human nature is to treat a beautiful woman or a good-looking man with a bit of extra attention, and you deny that you do that, but you probably do without knowing it. So, so the reason that Boaz treated Ruth so well was that she was beautiful, right? Not necessarily. How do you know she was beautiful? Did you read anywhere in Ruth that said she was a beautiful lady? No. Now, the Bible at times does identify beauty. In Genesis 12, it talked about Abraham's wife, Sarah, said she was beautiful. Genesis 24, it says that Jacob's wife, Rebekah, was a very beautiful woman. And another book, Esther, it said that Esther's appearance was more beautiful than the other women. Second uh, Samuel, it talks about a woman called Bathsheba who is described as a woman of unusual beauty. It, it refers to Tamar as being beautiful. But Ruth's appearance, never mentioned as being beautiful. And, and she might have been. But as I studied this book, I became convinced that Ruth's appearance was perhaps quite average. So the question is, why is this wealthy man, who probably could have had any woman he wanted, why is he showing so much kindness to Ruth? And I'm sure there are several reasons. One is that Scripture said she had outstanding character outstanding character. And from a male's perspective, that is most always attractive to a man. Now, there may be a few men that want a sleazy wife with low morals and low character. Uh, you know, Garth Brooks sings the song, I've got friends in low places. You know, I think I'll go on down to the oasis. And, and it may be okay to have friends in low places if you're trying to win them to Jesus. But I don't think many guys want a wife in low places with the morals of a tomcat. Ruth had high character. Scripture also says she was a hard worker, which is appealing to men. I mean, most of us men don't want a wife that sleeps till noon and then just lays around watching soaps all day long. We also read where Ruth honored her mother-in-law. You know, it seems that today there's less and less honor given to parents and, and in-laws. And, and I know of some elderly parents that have adult children living in the same community or sometimes you know, the parents are living in a nursing home, and the children will go days and days, weeks and weeks, without checking on their aging parents. Ruth honored her mother-in-law. But, but there's one other reason that Boaz might have felt a connection to Ruth, and, and, and I'd never thought of this until I studied this book. And so before we begin our study at the beginning of Ruth 4, to see this other reason that Boaz might have paid special attention to Ruth, I want us to go to the end of Ruth 4. We're going to do things backwards today and start at the end, and we'll go back to the beginning. Now, as we go back to the end of the chapter and book, most people skip the last four to five verses of this chapter because it has one of the 25 different genealogical lists in the Bible. You, you know, as the King James Version says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so. And, and you know what you do? Most of us, we skip these lists. 
But this list in, in Ruth chapter 4 is really important because it shows how God has grafted into his family individuals like Ruth the foreigner. And let me point out two amazing facts from this list. One now and another one at the end of this lesson. Perhaps the biggest reason why Boaz might have treated Ruth with so much respect is found in Ruth chapter 4 verse 21. Six words, Salmon was the father of Boaz. Now, do you see the significance? I didn't think so. So what? Salmon was the father of Boaz. Well, this in itself is not such a big deal. But by finding out who Boaz's dad was, we can track down Boaz's mom. And we find that information in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 in the New Testament. Salmon was the father of Boaz... His mother was Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, Rahab was the former prostitute from Jericho. The King James Version says Rahab the harlot. And let me just kind of insert this in quickly. Some scholars question whether or not this is the same Rahab from Jericho, but many others, probably most scholars, are convinced that this is the same Rahab because Rahab ends up in the lineage of Christ. But let's just presume that this is the Rahab from Jericho. And, and let me give some history for Rahab. As the Israelites crossed over into the promised land, the first city they needed to conquer was, was Jericho. And let me just kind of show you a map here so you get an idea. They, would come, they were coming this way. This is what they think. Probably the route was right here. They went, went up here to Gilgal. And then the first major city was Jericho. And it was a walled city, a very strong city, a powerful city. And um, before they attacked Jericho, the Israelites sent spies into Jericho to check things out. The spies were being followed, and so they knew they were in trouble. They ducked into someone's house that at that time they didn't know. It happened to be Rahab's house. And who was Rahab? Well, an idol-worshiping Canaanite prostitute. Talk about a checkered past. But when the spies ducked in there, they didn't go in there for gratification, sexual gratification. Rather, they went in there because God in His divine providence led them there for protection. And, and many of you would remember a story if you were raised in church. Rahab protected the spies, helped them to escape from the city. She let them down over the city walls with, with a rope. And remember the scarlet rope, the scarlet thread hanging from the window so that when the city was attacked... They would know where she lived and, and spare her life when, when the Israelites attacked Jericho. And, and here's what's significant. Rahab left her life of prostitution, became a follower of Jehovah, and the Bible tells us that Rahab married Salmon. And so if indeed this is the Rahab from Jericho, which again, many scholars do believe this, this would make the former prostitute, former idol-worshipping foreigner, Boaz's mom. And, and so I took a long detour just to say that I wonder if when Boaz saw Ruth and, and heard her story, if it didn't remind him of the stories that his mom possibly had told him of how hard it was for her to leave her people and, and become accepted in a new country with a new religion. And Boaz would have known firsthand what it was like to be the son of an immigrant or a foreigner. And I wonder if that didn't prompt his kindness to Ruth throughout this entire book. Okay, let, let's go ahead and jump now to the beginning of Ruth chapter 4. What happened after Ruth slept at the feet of Boaz and basically asked him to become her husband and kinsman redeemer? Well, he said, yes, I would love to be your kinsman redeemer and marry you. But as I said, slight problem. There's a closer relative. 
we got to give him first chance to redeem you. So Boaz goes on a mission to resolve this issue. This is a fascinating account. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. So Boaz went down to the town gate, took a seat there. When the family redeemer had men, uh, when the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, Boaz called out to him, Come over here, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Now, since Bethlehem was so small, and scholars feel like maybe around 200 people or so, there was probably only one gate into town, and everyone would have to go through that gate every time they went to work in the fields or every time they came back from working in the fields. And, and in the typical Old Testament city, right by the gate, there would have been a, a little area with benches for enough uh, seating for about 10 to 12 people. This is where official business was carried out. It was like a courtroom setting. And when, so when someone would go and sit in those benches, it was sending a message, I'm here for a legal matter. And, and what I found interesting is that there were no preliminary hearings. You know, there was nothing of what happens today of, okay, we'll put this case on the docket, but sorry, the next available date, we had to hear your cases 10 months down the road. You know, legal matters in court can take years to, to get resolved here in, in our country. But 3,300 years ago in Bethlehem, when you went to the gate of the city with your legal matter, it was settled immediately. So Boaz, probably early in the morning, took his place on those benches, knowing that the one who was closer kin to Naomi would have to walk by this area as he went out of the city to work in his fields. Well, no sooner had Boaz sat down, the, the man who was closest of kin to Naomi and, and could be the rightful kinsman redeemer or, or called a goel, he came by almost immediately. Now, the Goel's name, or the kinsman redeemer's name, is never mentioned. So, several translations, and this translation refers to him as a friend. Um, the, the King James refers to him as such a one. The, the Hebrew term used to address him uh, really has no translation in English. Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting-sounding Hebrew word, uh, polonial money, almost like baloney. And there's no exact translation for Poloni Elmoni. And so when, when Boaz called out Poloni Elmoni, you know, it, it would be similar to our saying, excuse me, sir, or, or mister, can I talk with you a couple of moments about a legal matter that involves you? Well, the closest of kin was there, but now for this meeting to become official, Boaz needed to gather a quorum of witnesses. Verse 2, then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town, asked them to sit as witnesses. Now, in ordinary circumstances, two or three were sufficient to witness a simple matter of business. But in cases of marriage, with this, which this would be, divorce, transaction of property, which this would be, it was the Jewish practice to have 10 leaders, which actually the word for leader is elder and is taken from the Hebrew word for beard. Uh, now, in the New Testament, it refers to leaders in the church as elders. That doesn't necessarily mean that an elder in a church 
has to be an older person. It's referring to spiritual maturity. You can have a younger person that might qualify to be an elder in a church. You could have an older person that might not qualify because, uh, you know, being spiritually immature. But, but these elders in the book of Ruth probably would have been older. They would have been established leaders simply because of the word beard. Now, these ten were to serve as witnesses, not jurors. They were not here to determine any outcome. They were merely present to publicly witness and acknowledge the decisions made between Boaz and his unnamed relative. And, and today we'd go before, you know, a notary and they would witness our signature. So these elders were, in a sense, notary publics that witnessed the proceedings. Boaz starts in and explains why he's called a meeting. Verse 3. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I, I felt that I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. Now, normally property passed from father to children. But since there were no surviving children, the practice of that day was for the land to remain with a widow until her death. But Boaz is telling them that Naomi is in financial need. She has nothing. And uh, so she, she is saying that, uh, you, you know, please, uh, we, we need to probably provide for this widow. And, and so that's why we're asking that this land be sold to be able to provide for her needs. So, so Boaz says, Mr. Polonial Moni, you're the first in line to buy this property. Well, this initially automatically just sounds like a good deal to him. He didn't even have to think about it. He didn't have to pray about it. He says, excellent, it's a deal. I'll redeem it. I'll buy it. Thank you. Now, in a land redemption, there had to be two elements. First, the redeemer must be a blood relative. And, and Mr. Polonial Moni meets that requirement. He's the closest blood relative. Secondly, the redeemer must have willingness and the financial means to afford the purchase. And this relative obviously did. He knows he's going to have to add Naomi to his household and provide for her, but she was beyond childbearing days. And so it wasn't like she's going to have children born that would then inherit the land. So, so far, this is a no-brainer. But then Boaz, and I think he had thought about this during the rest of the night after his Skin became like a boiled turnip, and he was so scared. But I, I think he was thinking, okay, strategy, strategy, strategy. How can I word this? Boaz reveals to him the fine print. Verse 5, Boaz told him, uh, uh, of course. Um, I, I, I love this. Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth. The Moabite, Moabite, remember, wash pot, widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land and the family. And so, so as a kinsman redeemer, land and marriage went hand in hand. It wasn't just about land, it was about legacy as well. And well, all of a sudden, the, the fine print causes the deal to hit a snag. And in Verse 6, he says, and I, I can't redeem it um, because this might endanger my own estate. You know, you, you go ahead and redeem the land. I, I'm just not going to do it. Now, we don't know all the reasons that this man said he couldn't do it, but here are a few possibilities first. Maybe he already had a wife. 
Now, polygamy was practiced back then, and so he could have married Ruth anyway. But most of the time, it didn't create a real wholesome atmosphere around the house. I mean, try to imagine guys having two to three wives around in the same household, and the wives you try to imagine that too, having competition there. Another possible reason is that maybe he realized that if he married Ruth and had children with her, then this land would have to stay in the family of Elimelech, so he could possibly spend all the money to buy the land, still lose it back to the original family, and not to mention that Ruth's children would be eligible to inherit from the man's current holdings, thus causing issues with his other children. But, but to top it off, he realized he would also need to care and provide for not just one, but rather two widows. Because Naomi and Ruth would come as a package deal in the house. So the win-win now looked like more a dot-com investment. And so he says, you know, if I marry, if I have to marry Ruth, I don't want the land. Boaz, it's yours. Well, of course, those were the words that Boaz wanted to hear. And, and in his mind, he probably went, yes, yes. And so they proceeded to make this a legal decision. And to do so, a rather strange thing was done. Um, in verse 7, it says, In those days it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. And former prosecuting attorney Mike, I don't know if you ever saw this happen in your courtrooms or not, but this publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal, as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the leaders in the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, Mahalon, and with the land I've acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. These beards are the witnesses. Now, why the whole shoe thing? Aren't you glad we don't do that today? Well, according to ancient Middle Eastern Newsy texts, and, and Newsy texts were were tablets, and there were nearly 7,000 of them that have been discovered. That They gave legal and administrative records and practices of this time period. Some of them are stored actually in a museum in Iraq. But those newsy texts indicated that shoes symbolized ownership in property transactions, and, and by removing his sandal, the nearest kinsman redeemer acknowledged he was forfeiting his right to walk on the land and publicly sealed his intention to transfer his rights to Boaz. Now, let me, let me bring out something fascinating. You know, a lot of us, we, we read the Old Testament, it's just, oh, I can hardly wait to get the New Testament. Old Testament is fascinating. And, and let me bring out something that's fascinating. Scripture tells us what parties could do should the Poloni Elmoni or the kinsman redeemer refuse to accept this responsibility. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. 25, 7, it says, but if the dead man's brother refuses to marry the widow, she must go to the town gate, say to the leaders there, my husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to marry me. The leaders of the town will then summon him and try to reason with him. If he still insists that he doesn't want to marry her, here's what can happen. The widow must walk over to him in the presence of the leaders, pull his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. That's right. She will then say, this is what happens to a man who refuses to raise up a son for his brother. Ever afterward, his family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. So the, the law said that if a goel refused to take on the responsibility of kinsman redeemer, 
as this Polonial Boney did, then Naomi and Ruth had the right to jerk off his sandal, publicly spit in his face, call his family the name, the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. Isn't this fascinating? I'm telling you, this is fascinating stuff. But of course, Ruth and Naomi did not do this because this was the outcome they wanted. They wanted the outcome with Boaz. They wanted this other guy to say no. But they did have the legal rights to spit in his face. So what happens now? Verse 11. Then the leaders and all the people standing there replied, We're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is now coming into your home like Rachel and Leah from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you be great in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. Ephrathah was just kind of the surrounding area there around Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So, so the townspeople responded with statements of blessing. They then gave Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the foreigner, the wash pot, full acceptance into the community of faith. And it's interesting. Even though Ruth had been unable to conceive in 10 years of marriage, you know, before her husband died there in Moab, they're pronouncing, they're still pronouncing a blessing of children upon her. Ten years, barren. But they pronounce a blessing of children. And was she able to conceive? Let's find out. Verse 13. So Boaz married Ruth, took her home to live with him. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. We're about to get to the good part here. A little baby was born. They called his name Obed. And, and, and what's really interesting now, there's a kind of a switch. In, in, in an interesting turn of events, Boaz and Ruth, who had been the stars of the show, it's like they become noticeably absent. And the focus goes back to Naomi. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. And the women of the town said, Naomi, praise the Lord who has given you a family redeemer today. May he be famous in Israel. May this child restore your youth and care for you in your old age. And for he's the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you so much and has been better, you than, better to you than seven sons. Catch that. Seven sons. Naomi took care of the baby. Wait a minute. Who took care of the baby? Whose baby was it? Ruth. Naomi took care of the baby and cared for him as if he were her own. Oh, okay. Well, you're your grandma's babysitting. No. I'll explain in a minute. The neighbor women said, now at last, Naomi has a son again. Why this whole transfer? Well, something you need to understand is that because of the kinsman redeemer concept, the child, Obed, legally becomes Naomi's child. Ruth essentially gives her son up to her mother-in-law. And now Naomi has full rights as a parent over raising this child. Now, will Ruth have a relationship with him? Oh, yes. But according to the kinsman-redeemer concept, Ruth has willingly given up her son so that the family name could be carried on. And that sacrificial act on her part is why in, in, in verse 15, the women said that Ruth was better than seven sons. In, in that culture... 
you know, uh, girls were not very important, and, and uh, so you were judged on not how many kids you had, you were judged on how many sons you had, and, and if you had seven sons back then, that was the perfect family, seven sons. And the lady said, Ruth, you've proven yourself to be more valuable than seven sons. Well, the story isn't quite over. There's one more significant matter to consider. That the last few verses of Ruth gives us our grand finale. Verse 17, the neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. Here it is. You're going to have to track with me. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Now, what's significant about that? And, and, and I wish, Ryan or Jeremy, I wish that we could have had a big drum roll here. Um, because this is huge. Here's the significance. Here's the significance. Ruth, who came to Bethlehem as a foreigner from pagan Moab, washpot Moab, don't associate with Moab for 10 generations, this same Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David of Israel, the man after God's own heart. But there's more as the drum roll continues. Here in the little town of Bethlehem, where Obed... King David's grandpa was born, where David would also be born much later. Do you remember who else would be born in Bethlehem? I get chills thinking about it. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be born in little, the little town of Bethlehem. And what's interesting is that Ruth's name is mentioned in only one other place in God's Word, in Matthew chapter 1. And, and the incredible reality is that Ruth is one of the five women, five women who were part of the line of Christ. And these five women, they were not squeaky clean that you would expect God to choose to be in the lineage that Christ would come from. Take, for example, Tamar. You know, her husband died, but then she subsequently deceived her father-in-law into sleeping with her by dressing as a prostitute so she could raise up children. She is in the line of Christ. Isn't that crazy? I wouldn't have chosen her. Also in this list we mentioned is Rahab. Boaz's mom, the former prostitute from Jericho, she was the great-grandmother of David, not the sort that you would want to say, well, you know, she's my relative. Then there's Bathsheba. <clears throat> she committed adultery with David and Certainly not a squeaky clean past. There, there's Mary, mother of Jesus, even though she was godly and she was pure, yet she spent a lifetime with rumors hanging over her head because she had gotten pregnant before she was married. And the townspeople didn't quite understand that. But then you have Ruth, the former pagan Moabite woman who bowed down to false idols, but she said, Naomi, I'll go where you go. I'll live where you live. And here's the part, your God will be my God. And she became part of the lineage of the Messiah. So that brings us to some implications that we need to consider as we close out our series from Ruth. Number one, we all have a kinsman redeemer and, and he's not a Polonial Moni. He's not a hey, he's not a mystery. He's not a higher power. He's not the force. He's Jesus. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And when we were needy and destitute and hopeless and couldn't pay the price for redemption, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus paid for it. 
Number two, there's no one that has a past that is too bad that he or she cannot be redeemed. Rahab's prostitution did not disqualify her from God's grace. Tamar's sexual come on to her father-in-law did not disqualify her from God's grace. Bathsheba's immorality did not disqualify her from God's grace. Ruth's idol worship did not disqualify her from receiving God's grace. Nor does your past disqualify you. For God so loved the world, you know that. That means all of us. Thirdly, and this is perhaps the best part here, God's redemption includes restoration. You know, of course, our, our, our sins sometimes have lingering consequences, but this account shows us that our past does not control the future. When God redeems people, he takes our sin and forgives and cleanses and gives us new life in Jesus Christ, where we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so today, the most important thing as we wrap up our study of Ruth, if you're not redeemed, I'm talking to you, if you're not redeemed, your kinsman redeemer is here. And he has the means to redeem you. And he's willing. Don't do like our court systems today and delay. Today is the day. Today is the day. So I think it would be a tragedy for us to finish this powerful little book of Ruth and for anybody to walk out of here without being redeemed. So today, if you're not where you need to be in your walk with God, if you have a sin, unconfessed sin in your life, if you're living in sin, the kinsman redeemer is here. We're at the edge of the city gates and he's willing to redeem you but you have to be willing to accept that redemption so this morning the choice is up to you you can have a new life you can have a new life in Jesus I'm going to ask you to stand maybe there's someone that would like to just come forward and say pastor I, I just want to pray Maybe there's someone here that wants to come pray and worship and you just, God's been so good to you and you just want to come forward just as an act of worship. Maybe there's someone here that wants to come forward. You need to actually pray and do some business with God and accept redemption. If you want to come and kneel at the steps. And I realize this isn't the only place, but this is a beautiful place where we can come. It's a safe place. You don't confess your sins to me. You confess them to Jesus. Remember, you've got direct access to Jesus. Anyone, you want to come? And... Oh, Lord, we just thank you for your presence. Thank you for this amazing book, this powerful book that just spoke to my heart, even though I've read this book so many times. It's so, so short. I've read it so many times, but yet it just, this time, for some reason, it just spoke to my heart. And I thank you for the fact that you've, you've purchased me. Lord, I've, I, I've had my past, as I think a lot of us have. Lord, you've purchased me. You've redeemed me. You've cleansed me. Lord, you've restored me. God, I thank you for that. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that hasn't experienced that restoration, if there's anyone that hasn't experienced that cleansing, that redemption. I pray that today would be the day that they would say yes to Jesus. 
Lord, don't let us get out of these doors without taking that step. And Father, thank you that we don't have to necessarily come forward unless there's just pride involved. And Lord, you may require that. I don't know. But yet, Lord, this is a matter in our heart. And I just pray right now as everyone's standing that, God, there would be redemption that would take place. Pray this in Jesus' name. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there anybody that would just say, Pastor, pray for me? God has really spoken to me today. Thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else? God has spoken to me today. Just pray for me. And God is doing a work in my heart. Just pray, Lord, thank you again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.